Hello and welcome to episode 24 of the Belong Conversation podcast. This episode is a conversation with Brighton-based filmmaker Julia Alcamo about her latest project, All We Have, a multimedia online exhibition documenting people's experience of the global COVID-19 pandemic from all over the world. I first met Julia because we are both ambassadors for the national eating disorder charity Beat, and we've been in contact ever since because she is a seriously awesome person to know. It was so great to spend some virtual time with her talking about the All We Have project, how it started and how it's evolved, the common threads running through the global experiences of lockdown and our own experiences of having to find a new way of being and managing our own mental health over the last few months. We also spoke about which new habits we think are going to stick as the world begins to emerge again. I won't say too much more because I really want to get into this conversation and I hope you enjoy it as much as we did. Julia, thank you so much for joining the Belong Conversation on this sunny Saturday morning. Um, Please do start by introducing yourself and letting our listeners know who you are and what you do. Thank you so much for having me, Alice. Um, My name is Julia. I'm a documentary filmmaker. At the moment, I run Happenstance Films with my partner, Dan, uh, out of Brighton, but really looking to work in the UK, in Europe, and worldwide, ideally, yeah. And the reason that we are talking today is because you have started this fantastic storytelling project called All We Have. So tell us about that. What's the project and where did the idea come from? Yeah, All We Have um, was really born out of, I guess, my own lockdown experience um, alongside the lockdown experience of a couple of other people around the world, which has been great. Um, It's a digital exhibition um, that brings together stories from around the world in an attempt to sort of give a platform to individuals um, to speak about how they're coping, what fears they might have, what hopes they might have. I'm really trying to, we're really trying to cut across sort of any, uh, you know, demographic. We're trying to talk to all ages. We're trying to talk to all colors, uh, you know, all sexual orientations. We're, we're sort of really interested in seeing what those fundamental things are that we share. And the project initially um, came from a couple of different places. So on my side, we um, had gone into lockdown and uh, I was really going a little bit crazy because most of our work as filmmakers is pretty much immediately cut out. You just can't Mm -hmm. go out and film. And if you can't go out and film, you can't really go and edit anything. And um, at the same time, there were things happening around me that I felt were so important to capture. I mean, again, as a documentary filmmaker, the inclination would be to go out, you know, and I'm sure many, many journalists felt the same way. You know, you're watching this and yet you're being told to stay at home. Mm -hmm. And so we tried to come up with something that we could do from our own um, home and uh, that would still allow us to reach out uh, to anywhere essentially. And uh, the other thing that was going on for myself is um, we, we know each other through, through BEAT, the eating disorder charity. Yeah. I've always been very interested in mental health 
having struggled so much myself with anxiety, depression, eating disorders. And in a time like this, it immediately struck me, you know, what on earth are people going through? Like what's going on in people's mm. heads? And how are we going to be able to process that at the same time? Um, because we also, anyone who works in mental health uh, or has dealt with it also knows that the earlier you start tackling the problem, um, the higher the sort of chance of actually dealing and, and I mean, recovery would maybe be the wrong word in this case, mm -hmm. but understanding, you know, and not, not being so hard on yourself, um, probably not being so hard on everyone around you <laughs> who you're locked yeah. in with. And so I guess I was, I was struck by, um, wanting to allow people to start talking about what they were experiencing as well. And so it was really about those personal stories. Um, of course, I was fascinated as well to hear, you know, what's lockdown like in Peru? You know, what, what's the situation in Pakistan? Of course, there is that intrigue as well about knowing more details of what's happening on the ground. But fundamentally, the approach we take when we speak to people is to ask them about their personal experience. And that takes us in so many different directions. You know, mm -hmm. we like bringing in a bit of people's past because that often explains to us why they have experienced the lockdown in that specific way. Mm -hmm. So it was, um, it was that which really got me then saying, okay, right, let's just start talking to people. And that's what we did. Um, I reached out to friends around the world. Um, I'm very privileged to have friends all around the world and who were able to say, you know, I have these fascinating characters. Maybe you want to talk to that person. This person has experienced that. So we started doing that. At the same time, um, an old colleague of Dan's got in touch and said, uh, I have all these photos I'm collecting from around the world from lockdown. Uh, what can we do with it? So he sort of came in serendipitously at the same time and um, we joined forces really. He really liked the idea of collecting more intimate stories. Um, they wanted a platform where they could showcase the photographs and so we combined them. So on, on the digital exhibition itself now consists of both the photo collections which juxtapose really nicely um, moments experienced from all over the world next to each other uh, with similar themes. So we, we really, we, we've try to curate the themes uh, by what sort of jumps out at us when we're looking through the hundreds of photos that we've received. And what happens is that, you know, you have the empty streets of Rome next to the empty streets of Eritrea, next to the empty streets of um, Bangkok. And it just, again, it's such a leveler. It's such, you know, we're all experiencing, we're having the same experience at the same time, which is so unique. And I guess we're really trying to capture that. And the photos bring that out really nicely. And then the other part of the exhibition are these multimedia stories, which are uh, about the individuals. And, and we ask them for photographs, we have some videos, and, and we work with their audio interviews there, yeah. And you, you mentioned that obviously you've spoken to people all, o all over the world, a, a massive kind of cross-section, diverse section of people. What, are, are there any kind of surprising common themes that have emerged from particularly like a personal experience perspective in terms of how people have been have been feeling and have those surprised you? I think some of them are probably obvious themes in a way that we we're like okay yes anxiety is going to be something we experience around the world. What's impressed me though is just the degree to which we share that. 
Um, yeah. So I've spoken to a woman who lives in New York. Her name is Stella. Uh, she was fabulous, um, but she was also incredibly anxious. I mean, really, mm. uh, she she has come up with she's fabulously structured in her life. And so one thing, for example, she's come up with are these different plans of how to cope with these very specific incidents during lockdown. So she has a 27 step plan how wow. to deal with pack, uh, picking up packages wow. in her own apartment building. Right. Yeah. And she has all these different she has dating during the pandemic. I mean, everything she's sort of structured out for herself. Um, yeah. But of course, you know, the way it came through to me is in a way to cope with her anxiety, which is completely understandable uh, at this time, especially if you are, if you have underlying health conditions and if you are aware of your age or if you are aware of, you know, just the impact um, the virus might have on you. At the same time, I spoke to a young woman in Kashmir who has been under one form or another of lockdown for a lot of her life. Mm. And yet the ways she was talking about that anxiety of not being able to interact with people in a normal way, not feeling like she had access to expressing herself. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. Stella in New York, um, she's living alone and she's never thought of herself as a hugger. But she said, you know, I might come out of this as a hugger because I'm missing physical contact so mm -hmm. much. Um, and and so these these feelings were so shared on such a deep level and and, and such um yeah I don't know uh, in a way that that did surprise me because I I feel like our cultures should sort of determine that we do feel different or that we express our feelings differently and in the end mm -hmm. actually we don't really. We still sort of have those those similar feelings of anxiety. So anxiety is obviously one of the ones that has really spanned across um, my conversations. What I've found really interesting listening to are um, the older generations. I say older. Uh, they'd probably be a bit... Um, uh, <laughs> uh, what, what, what's the word I'm looking for? unhappy to be described as older maybe um but the, you know um the older generation and listening to them talk about loss and age and mm -hmm. um i've had conversa a conversation with a man who lost his own brother to covid but at the same time was then not able to grieve mm -hmm. um because you have to keep distances you can't have funerals you you know he lived in brooklyn and he suddenly became incredibly aware of his own vulnerability as well so it's not yeah. like you've just lost someone but it's also brought the illness home to you so much more i think his yeah. brother was 72 and i think michael is late 60s if i'm if i'm right and so it wasn't just that he was grieving at the same time he was also really confronted with his own vulnerability at the specific time and so the listening to um, those thoughts about how we come to terms or not with the idea of being vulnerable and the idea of dying mm -hmm. it's not something that's just shared across 
um, the, the uh, you know, 60s plus I've spoken to, but certainly is a big, big theme there. Um, I had a conversation with a man who lives in Rome and he overall had a very, if I may say so, positive experience with the lockdown and so far as he was able to be in his home, continue doing his work, um, had the people he loved around him. But he and his wife, for the first time, felt that it was maybe both appropriate but also okay in a way to start talking about death. Mm -hmm. So for them, it was less of a shock. It was less that sort of vulnerability coming home to you in a really aggressive way. For them, it was more the time they had together allowed mm -hmm. them to start thinking about it together. Um, mm -hmm. And that was, that was really interesting to listen to because I guess when you when you think about older couples, you maybe, maybe you assume, I don't know, maybe you assume that they eventually start talking about, people make their wills. So do you then mm -hmm. have a conversation really about dying or do you just bridge it very practically? And you're like, okay, right, we're going to make our will now. And then, you know, let's move on. Mm -hmm. And I think for a lot of people, it's actually that forcing to stop and spending more time probably with yourself, but also with the person you love or the person you spent most of your life with seems to have brought out um in a new relationship to to that sort of idea of dying and and the 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 vulnerability that you do have um but in different ways so that's been really interesting how um you know when we say what are the things people share there are lots of them but then there's also the way we approach death and the topic of death has been really varied across the conversations mm -hmm. actually it's not mm -hmm. been one consistent story. And depending on whether you're alone, depending on whether you've experienced lots of loss in your life previously, um, depending on what religion or what part of the world you belong to, does actually change the way you look at um, dying, death, uh, per, you know, uh, the idea of being vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And that's been really interesting to, mm -hmm. to explore I guess, especially as a 27 year old, it's mm. not something that's quite so immediate to myself. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. It's so, it's so interesting, isn't it? Like one of the, one of the biggest things that like, well, there's a couple of things that I've really found like personally. And the first is that I am very much a busy, busy person. And I tend to, you know, all of these kind of deeper thoughts around like death and the future and their thoughts that, that I, I realise now more than ever, I tend to avoid by keeping myself busy. And obviously over the last few months, there has been a, a limit to how busy I can keep myself without being able to go anywhere. And, and, and it really has been this space for like an unprecedented level of reflection of of inner of inner conversation and and I feel like I've sort of you know learned more about myself in the last three months than I possibly have in the last three years which is you know which is incredible and it has led to so many of these conversations like with my friends with my partner with my business partner that I don't think I would have had without this so, you know, that that feels like it's been a, a pretty, you know, well, perhaps in, in my echo chamber of people anyway, but it does feel like that's been a, a, a pretty universal experience. And 
and the other thing uh, yeah and, and the other thing that's really struck me is around how we offer comfort to people um because you know i'm i'm very much a person where like if i hear a friend or relative is in need i i will i i am a go to them person i am a what do you need i will bring it to you we will have a hug we will have a a glass of wine or a cup of tea and and i will just be there with you and i haven't been able to do that and that's been a real you know and and i think as well like conversation has been so much more essential without that that physical presence um and it's also kind of made me think about like what how you know it there's i think there's been almost like anxiety for me around like i don't know how i can be a good friend in all of this when i can't <laughs> i can't yeah, comfort yeah. people in the in the way that i'm used to and and you know that's been bringing all of this stuff up for me as well so yeah it's been it's it's been the most i mean obviously like some really anxiety inducing and fear inducing and also such an interesting experience from how our interactions with ourselves and each other have changed yeah the the element of self-reflection has been absolutely core to what's come out of our conversations with people Mm. um it's we are encouraging, obviously, self-reflection by speaking to people about their experience. You know, the, the starting point for an interview is, okay, I'm going to ask you questions to reflect on and to tell mm-hmm. me your story. But what comes out is also that people say, I have been self-reflecting so much more than ever mm-hmm. before in my life. And it's really forced me to stop and think. And I, I absolutely agree. I think that's something we share everywhere and we share it in really unusually different situations. Um, So I've spoken to um, a couple of um, people who work in sort of NGO scenarios in different countries. And one of um, the people I interviewed was Patrick who runs um, or manages an NGO in Uganda. And they work, um, their work primarily focuses around um, women empowerment and girls empowerment. And he, he had just this, he had this fascinating um, story in that Uganda, you know, he said, we're, we're so used to um, challenges. We're so, we're even used to epidemics. Like we had Ebola, you know, we, we had locusts just before coronavirus comes we now have floods so the the natural disaster element of it is Mm. so normal Mm. but it's the very first time that this um, challenge has forced him into his own house so normally as someone who works with a charity especially someone who works with a grassroots charity like he does it's act the charity is called act for africa they go into communities they work on the ground with communities who do not have access to internet who do not have access to mobile phones and can join the zoom calls and to not be able to go anywhere um, was really really striking for him and at the same time, you know, even though the stakes are so different for him, he shared the same um, uh, ideas of self-reflection that people, you know, crudely said in the first world shared. 
-hmm. It still forced him to think about himself. It still forced him to think about the type of work he does, how he does the work. Of course, the outcome of that reflection would be different. You know, to him, what, what he said to me, you know, it's this reflection has really um, shown me what, where we need to focus our priorities and food security is just one of those priorities. Of course, that outcome is incredibly different than the type of self-reflection that I think we would share, for example, where it's about, you know, where do we want to invest our time? Where, what are the elements that are... But the idea that nonetheless, irrelevant of what challenges we face, how basic or how complex or how, you know, fundamental to our livelihoods or to, you know, how we can enrich our lives, the self-reflection aspect of it is shared. And I find that really, really interesting. The other thing I wanted to just point or sort of follow up with a thought that you spiked um, when you said, you know, I've done more self-reflection in the last three months than I probably have done in the last three years. Mm -hmm. I think because all of that has been crunched into such a short time, it's been for many people both great, but also slightly frightening. So mm, yeah. I, one of the things I sort of wrote down when I read the questions you sent through to me was, um, you know, stopped time, self-reflection, taking time out, you know, having to think in yourself is something that's been mentioned by everyone. But it always seems to have been both really positive, but also somewhat scary or frightening or negative to people. And I think maybe it is because it's so much and we're not mm. really used to and we don't really have the skills to do quite so much self-reflection. Yeah. I don't know yeah. what they completely. Agree. No, completely. And about um, a month into lockdown, I um, I started. Well, have see it. I say seeing a therapist, but I I got in touch with a therapist because I recognised really early on that I my normal my normal processes and mechanisms for managing my anxiety suddenly weren't available to me and I recognized that need early on and I have been talking to a therapist now for the last couple of months and I and you know I don't like like you say like that that initial period and that change was so overwhelming for me that I I really needed that and I'm you know totally fine openly talking about and sharing that I I don't know how I would have got through these last couple of months without without seeing a therapist without without really going in and doing work around this stuff because it it has opened up so much for me that was really scary and was really overwhelming because the it's the, those tools the, the we don't worldly have, we're not distractions yeah and we're not given the tools that's the, that's mm. what's come out for me so i mm. you know i've spoken to a 13 year old in uh, melbourne and he you know he was such a mature child and it was fabulous but his, you know, his approach was, you know, the first two weeks I sat on a couch and I just stared at the wall, you know, and then I realized sort of this wasn't going to work. And he, he was able to take that, like, the time he was given and explore things he would have never done otherwise. So he started going running with his dad, for example. But even that was challenging, you know. It was like, okay, I'm going to take on this challenge. But it, it's a challenge. So you're, you know, in this confined space and you're... You're like, oh, I have time to do loads of things. Then you start something. I think that a lot of people have done that. Like, okay, I now have time. I must start something different. Mm -hmm. I must start a new challenge. And again, I think that comes back to what you were saying earlier where, you know, we try and make ourselves busy because sometimes mm -hmm. we just can't deal with quite how much, you know, is going on when we stare at a wall for two weeks. Yeah. 
Yeah. But then there's just been um, people who Suzanne um, is a, an American expat who's lived in Vietnam for 26 years now. And she has experienced a huge amount of loss in her life, including losing her husband 25 years ago, losing um, nephews, nieces, um, uh, and various family members. And so loss has really been a huge part of her life. She's also Buddhist. She's also a practicing Buddhist. And she has, through I think this combination, of being confronted with herself or her vulnerability over the course of her life, but also being given tools. She was able to go into the time, I think, with just a little bit more to hold on to than probably a lot of us had. And she actually ended up in quarantine in Vietnam for two weeks and in this dorm room with eight other people, you know, on a floor that was locked to the outside world. Bear in mind, she's in her 70s. And with these, she, she described her arrival in the dorm that she got in and there were these two Russian women who were already there, these teenage, these sort of youths um, who were just sat there crying as she came in and they just said, you know, welcome to hell. <laughs> and she just, she sort of looked at them and she was like, okay, girls, like, this isn't great. This isn't great, but it could be worse. And it's like, you know, let's just, let's just tackle this wow. slowly you know one day by another and not and I just I loved sort of her honesty about sometimes it's also worth just thinking it's not the worst like it's not it's but that's not easy to do you know you need tools you need to understand that we can go on you need to understand that bad things pass and that we and I don't think in this busyness that we've created for ourselves we've ever been given those tools so that's been really striking in, in talking to people, the different levels, you know, really different degrees to which people have developed the tools themselves, maybe given them through their culture, maybe through, you know, circumstances and sometimes characteristics. Some characters just um, allow, you know, types allow themselves to process it better, but more importantly, like yourself, allow themselves to actually access help. And so I've been surprised when some people have been quite stubborn about, mm -hmm. you know, I've, I've had this time and it's, it's been quite difficult, but it's okay. You know, I've, now I, now I realize it's great. You know, now I realize it's, that's lovely, but I feel sometimes that there's a little bit of lying to yourself in there as well. Whereas mm -hmm. there's some other people who I speak to who are like, okay, I just realized that I wasn't coping anymore. And so I, you know, mm -hmm. either I went out and, uh, spoke to someone or I reached out for help elsewhere and, and again it's just one of those tools that I don't think we really have to how do you deal with yourself when you have a lot of time to think about yourself and your life and your relationships it's a scary scary world mm -hmm. you know it's mm -hmm. a really scary world yeah yeah completely and you know, in terms of in terms of you personally, I know that you know we we mentioned at the top of the the conversation that we um, we met through the ambassador work that we both do for for Beat the eating disorder charity, and you know, I'm I'm really curious to know as someone who and it's interesting because you know obviously through the work we do for Beat as ambassadors, we we go into schools and other organizations and we speak very openly about our own eating disorder recovery. 
um, and, you know, are both people who identify as, as being recovered. And I noticed it really struck me at the start of lockdown. And it, and it surprised me, actually, the first thought that came to my head when, you know, it was that week where we were going out and we were walking around the supermarket aisles. And the first thought that came to my head was, I, I am so grateful that I am not dealing with an eating disorder right now because this would be so, so difficult. And, um, and, and you know, those thoughts did, did start to kind of come back for me in a way they haven't come back in years around like what food I have access to, what exercise I have access to. And I'm just wondering what if, you know, if you'd be happy to share whether, you know, what the impact has been for you on that as well, if there has been any. Yeah, I liked your question, how have I been tripped up by life? Because that's yeah. what we ask our contributors. And yeah, really and, and, that, it's, and it's, yeah, and particularly if you've been through, you know, I've like, like I was saying, I've been through a lot of, you know, mental health issues and I've worked through them. And it's like I was going on and getting on and I'd got my life and I'd got my coping techniques and, and I was feeling like I was in a good that. place. And then all of a sudden it was literally, and it was like the experience of kind of, I've got all these tools in my tool belt and like, you know, and then just tripping up and everything was suddenly scattered everywhere. And I was like, I don't like, I suddenly don't know how to do my life anymore. So yeah, what, what was that like for you? Yeah, I think we shared probably a very similar progression in that mm-hmm. I think we had a conversation at the beginning of lockdown, actually. I was, I yes, was thinking back to this. Yeah. And at that point, both of us were saying, okay, phew, so glad, you know, we don't have any to deal with. Also quite glad we've dealt with anxiety in the past because, you know, yeah. it sort of seems fine. You know, also glad we're both self-employed and we work from home a lot. We're all set up, you know, sort of, you know, that like we still had our tools in place. Yeah. And I... um I then had my birthday on the 14th of April, it's my birthday, and I turned 27 and I just suddenly like collapsed almost. I mean, that's sort of what it felt like. It was like, Mm. oh my God, I'm so old. I haven't done anything and everything completely irrational just flooded in. And unfortunately, as you will know, with that comes um, the scattering of tools comes the sort of you lose track of what you can do and the level to which you've handled it Um, and similarly to yourself I've um, I've always reached out to the therapist who really took me through my eating disorder throughout Mm. though like throughout periods of my life that have been difficult and Mm. I I think there's a little bit of difficulty sometimes talking about that because you know, people who sort of have their therapist, you know, you sort of imagine that valley girl, you know, oh my God, I'm going to my therapist. <laughs> and I, I always say to people, and I mostly say to myself, you know, you have to just, at some point, you have to think of your mental health as your health. And the same way as if you have a cough that comes back and that's really bad, you will go back to the GP. You know, you mm-hmm. won't say, oh, right, I had a cough, you know, once in my life 10 years ago, so I'm not going to bother going, getting it treated yes. this time. You yes. go back. And so I did the same thing. I, I've also um, been speaking to a therapist. And the biggest thing, I think it was maybe less that I was self-reflecting. I, I have been self-reflecting, but it was less that. It was more that my tools were gone, that I suddenly yeah. felt incapable of 
eating, I suddenly felt like I had all these, um, these thoughts were really real and vivid again, which they weren't. I think I still agree with you. It's very, very different to actually be in an eating disorder right now yes. than to be recovered from an eating disorder. Um, I still regularly experience anxiety when I go shopping for food every now and then. I will go and I will absolutely hate it. I mean, to you know, you sort of, I'll go out to do the shop and I'll come back and be in such a bad mood and everyone will be like, what the hell happened? And I was like, oh, I went shopping, you know, and I absolutely hated it because I had to go shop, you know, and sometimes it's still, and so that comes back, but I can cope with it. I can then come back, you know, and I know that I've just had a bad experience shopping. Whereas if you're in an eating disorder, you would be incapable to shop. I mean, I think I would have been paralyzed mm-hmm. um, yeah. previously to a much greater degree. Yeah. And so for me, it was really just trusting myself, actually, more than anything else, reconnecting with the tools I had been given that I have built over the last 10 years now, you know, of recovery, Mm -hmm. um, that I know I can deal with it, Mm -hmm. you know, that I know it's a bad day, but I'm not suddenly going down into the hole again. Yeah. Yeah. And so that was really that was that was a couple of two really difficult weeks during lockdown and I was also really pissed off at myself because I was mm. like damn you like you've been telling everyone else lockdown's fine and and I genuinely felt like that at the beginning because like oh, I work from home anyway like I mm. you know I I spend so much time on my own anyway it'll be fine. But of course it's more than that, you know, we're not just locked in our houses. There's something quite scary um, mm. happening and, and, and world shifting and, and both in a good way. And it's always going to have some, you know, anxiety inducing bad negative feelings and effects in the end, yeah. you know. Yeah. And, and I so, think like anything, it, it takes a while to process, doesn't yeah. it? Like it happened. And like you say, for the first two weeks, it's like, it's fine. We'll deal with this. And then... It was like it. It was like then the reality hit of like these are all the things I'm not able to do that help me, and I don't know when I'm going to be able to do them again. And and also in the end, it is important for me to balance the level with which I spend time with myself and when mm. I allow myself to just be distracted. So social, you know, if you. One, one of the first things you learn when you're depressed is, you know, get out of the house. Yeah. I mean, funny thing to say, you know, we can't yeah. get out of the house. You can't go and have a beer. You can't go and dance. Dancing is one thing that gets my mind completely reset. It's that resetting mm-hmm. that was much harder during do- lockdown when we you were just forced to spend time with yourself. And I'm sure that's where these both positive and negative experiences of people going, I've self-reflected so much. And it's like, it's great, it's horrible, it's great, it's horrible. You know, it just goes back and forth. And unfortunately, it's probably the reality of of how, how we process. And again, unfortunately, not something that's really understood and nurtured in crudely said uh, Western society we aim to be happy, we aim to be successful, we aim to be rich, we aim to be, but it's mostly that happy, you know, how to make yourself happy, how to make your family happy, how to, you know, have a happy relationship. It's like, but sometimes we're unhappy. 
being unhappy mm-hmm. is part of being human and so it's no surprise that when you're unhappy you're like oh my god how do I get back yeah. to being happy how do I do this where, where do I go instead of going okay I'm unhappy yeah we'll stop yeah and it's just as important an emotion to feel as as happiness and like you say we're so you know I mean particularly from uh <laughs> you know being a being a born and bred Brit you know from like the from like being a toddler it's like you know be brave don't cry you know but you know and you keep your head up keep your chin up like that's like instilled in you of like no but you know when you're feeling like shit push it down and put a brave face on and it's so damaging and it's so impossible sometimes it's also, I think what gets lost then when I had that moment during lockdown, I had my birthday, I felt really unhappy with where I was at, is that you lose the sense of purpose and you lose a sense mm. of value in yourself, unfortunately, because we somehow associate being unhappy with value. It basically, it, it sort of, mm. me, it's like, it means because I'm unhappy, I also have no value to the world yes. or I also, my work doesn't have any value. And it was through myself picking that up little by little, but then at the same time having this project, which just completely swapped things around again. Because Mm -hmm. when I started to have the first conversations and people came back to me and were like, thank you so much for speaking to me, or I could see them um, release, you know, I could see them share and process things that they probably hadn't spoken about in the same way before Mm -hmm. it was it was an indication to me okay right I can do you know I do have a purpose I can and so those go hand in hand then of course I felt better and then I had more purpose again and you know it's sort of it 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 helped me um get out of that but it's that little bit of purpose it's that feeling connected and feeling like you have value um, in your work and in yourself um that I think gets lost when we get unhappy yeah, I can I completely get that. You know, it's that whole thing about like you can't you know, you can't pour from an empty cup. You you have to feel you know, in order to be able to give to people, you have to take that time. You have to allow yourself to feel. You have to look after yourself. And I really struggle when I'm in that space because and and this is something you know that has really hit me during all of this self reflection is how much value i how much self worth rather i place in my ability to help people oh, and no. when i feel <laughs> and when i feel like i'm in that space of being down myself not only do i feel like i don't have the capacity to help anyone which is such a big part of my identity and my self worth but i also feel like i'm a burden to people which is even worse i'm like well i can't help people and i'm just going to burden them with all of my shit that they don't want to hear so i may as well just not talk to anyone and then because i'm not talking to anyone i'm just it's getting worse, worse and it becomes this this spiral and I, I'm, you know, I'm really working on getting better, at, you know, of, of getting myself out of that and, and being like, you don't have to always be doing something to help someone or contributing positively to something in order to, to have value. Like you can just be, and, and, you know, and also getting my head around the fact that by sharing my problems and sharing when I'm down also does help people. 
Yeah, because yeah, it is that, that sense of belonging and that sense of connection well. and that sense of someone else going through it, not oh, I need you to fix my problems. It's it's a shared experience. And I think that's such an important reframe as well. Exactly. It's not about and I think that's what we're we're really trying with with all we have to show it's not about fixing right now the problems that people are experiencing. Mm-hmm. But the first step is that sharing. It's that understanding that if we listen to each other a little bit more, we can probably hear a lot of things that we feel too. And therefore, mm-hmm. as you just said, feel better ourselves. I mean, it's it's yeah. really all very backward. <laughs> yeah. But again, you know, you have to unpick our brains. Well, no, you don't have to. But if you start to unpick our brains, you you notice very quickly that a lot of things seem backwards to begin with. But a lot of them are about connecting. And one thing we were really worried about when we started to put together the stories was like, okay, how quickly do people scroll? Like, are they going to spend time with this? Are they going to take the minute to listen to someone talk? And I was like, you know what, let's just... Let's just say that they should, you know, that's why on our website we say, you know, scroll less, listen more. Yeah. Because our, you know, we've spoken about, you said, you know, being British and being brought up in one way, our society has conditioned us to something, but our technology has also conditioned us to be a certain way. Our technology also conditions us to be short, have a short attention span, to be scrolling, to be swiping, you know, left or right, depending on how much you like it. And the, the patience that we actually need when you want to really connect with someone gets lost in that because the connection mm-hmm. isn't made through a little heart or a little thumbs up as crazy as it will seem, you know, to all the kids out there. <laughs> she says the 27-year-old. It's not a connection. It's not a real connection. The mm-hmm. real connection happens when, yeah, you can unconditionally talk and not have to either offer advice or offer a solution or mm-hmm. any of that. It mm-hmm. weirdly enough, you know, it just starts with yeah. listening to to the other person. Yeah. And so that's been really Completely. a real core sort of hope for us and something I think we we will keep working on. The projects by no means in the place of the to do, working to the degree where we'd like people to engage. I think that's mm-hmm. one of the challenges ahead really is how to get people um, reflecting a little bit more and hopefully engaging a little bit more. But on the other hand, if people are for themselves taking those stories and spending five minutes uh, with one of the stories, I think they will have already gained um, a really nice insight and hopefully uh, found something that they could connect with themselves or something they've felt themselves and therefore mm-hmm. not feel disconnected or alone. I think that's that's really one thing we hope people are... And I, and I think people are coming back to us and saying, you know, this, is, this has been really wonderful or this story has really made me feel, feel quite sad or I, I was really touched by the way they spoke about this or that. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. And... As we, one thing I'm really curious to ask is as we kind of, you know, we've spoken a lot about what our experience of lockdown has has been like. And one of the things I've been thinking about for myself is what, when, when all this is over and we're back out there and there is the option of us 
putting all of the things back into our life what do you think you're gonna put back in and what do you think you're gonna leave out of yours it's a really interesting question um and actually a really hard one i I had to sort of sit down properly and be like okay right (laughs) alice has made me think about this (laughs) um and i probably should think about it a bit more so let me start with the very boring things. I have gone for a walk every morning and I will continue to do that more. And rather than thinking, you know, no, I need to be at the desk at this time to just be that little bit more flexible with knowing that what I need is to get out and to get some fresh air and to, I mean, I love seeing the sea here in Brighton. Um, and, and so that's definitely one of the other, one of the other things is, is yoga in the same way that I've integrated it now much more regularly um, into my day and just not make that excuse of like, oh, I don't have time um, because it's a choice, you know, in the end it is a choice. So those are, those are my two boring, easy things, the easy answer. The, um, I think the other thing for me is actually the degree to which the time we've had has allowed uh, me and my partner to connect more mm-hmm. or to reconnect maybe even. Um, and I think that's probably what I want to keep in, or let's say what I want to leave out is that we spend too much time apart. That you sort of create, you just choose to have more time for that. And it goes Mm. a little bit against my nature. I'm very much like yourself. I'm very much like, let's go, let's go, let's, and I get so excited about it. And I get so happy when I'm busy. And he loves just spending a couple of hours in bed in the mornings and talking to each other or reading together and having just a moment when you're not trying to get anywhere and when you're not trying to get anything done together. Mm-hmm. Because you, we probably do it separately. And that's also important. But it's that conscious time together of doing not very much, but being together. I'm sort of repeating myself. With, yeah. with no, no, that makes that makes so much sense. And it's, you know, it's really interesting because me, me and my partner are very similar. We're, you know, we're both self-employed. We've both got our own projects going on. You know, she she is a performer and musician. And, you know, we, we are very much like go, 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 go people. We're so busy. And like when we first met, we were both very much like, right, this is going to work because we both have our own stuff going on. We both will give each other our own space. We're both really busy. And, and you know, the, our relationship was great. And we've been so grateful for being able to, like you say, have that connection and, and spend that time together. And we're like, oh, it's going to be so weird when we go out and start you know picking up our lives again and and picking up all of those projects and you know I'm very much a person that goes to this event and that event and this meeting and that meeting and I think that that's where I'm going to be really careful like I think that I don't want to go to an event where I just hang around having you know the same conversations with the same people for like the sake of showing my face somewhere which I think I had got into the point of doing and I hadn't realized how draining that was on my on my energy so I think I'm I'm definitely going to be a lot you know a lot choosier with those physical commitments and not let a sense of obligation dictate where I need to go in future I think I realized that I had been letting that happen a lot 
Yeah. I, for us, it was also that we had just been, we both commuted into London for certain months. Oh, wow. Not, and then some overlapped and some didn't. And we were really just exhausted and not, not on the same wavelength anymore. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, even after that stopped, I think we were so like in our own worlds and we were so used to then having the day like spend almost alone that it was really hard to come back together and like, okay, we're, we even started working together, but even that was like, okay, but I still want to do this and you still want to do that. And it was, we are, we do the same thing. We're, we're both filmmakers and we both have um, somewhat different, but also very similar dreams. And, and so it was weird. It was weird that we just couldn't find the connection really in a, in a deeper sense. We sort of were living together and we were, we love each other, but we didn't, it felt like we could also quite easily break apart if we weren't careful. Yeah. And what happened when we had these, these hours to do nothing and yet everything together mm-hmm. was that it sunk in more, you know, those layers of like patience for each other. Mm. You know, that, you're like, oh, okay, you do things that way. We don't agree with that, but that's okay. You know, because you do, you have that patience. And it's something, again, one of our, one of our, the people I spoke to, our contributors, Bernard, he said to me, he was like, you know, if you have more time, you also just have more patience for each other. Yes. So you always think, you know, of, and I mean, he's been married to his wife for 30 years. Yeah. He's like, you all have this, you always assume marriages have to be stressful and it's true you know there is always stress but actually a lot of the things resolve themselves once we have more time to together mm-hmm. now that's quite striking if you think about how much we talk about you know this is the way to solve your relationship and this is the way to cope with these problems in your relationship again very sort of strategy oriented where really what we probably need to do is just spend a little more time together yeah that so was that's been I think just one of the massive lessons for me, and one of the things I really, yeah, would love to take forward um, and keep keep in my life. And and I guess it means getting rid of something. I haven't quite decided what the something is, but <laughs> you know, the energy will be focused on something. Yeah, of thing. yeah completely. Together in because I think it just massively increased our connection and. Um, and our ability to understand each other in ironically in a, in a way that we want people to do through our project. Yeah. And what, what is next for the project? So as, you know, as we move past the pandemic, as we return to a, you know, I'm not going to say life as it was before, cause I don't think it will be, but as we move through into post lockdown life, will the project continue and how do you see it evolving? Yeah, I mean, one thing that we're really trying to do right now is um, follow almost the pandemic. One thing I think people, for example, in Europe don't really realize is that it's not over for Mm. a big part of the rest of the world. Yes. Um, I think Brazil just registered 30,000 new cases in one day. Um, It might seem like things are sort of going back to normal here, but it's certainly everywhere. And uh, we'll certainly be doing that for probably, I mean, I expect a a few more months. Mm -hmm. What we then would love to do is um, to create physical exhibitions, almost more as a retrospective sort of to to create um, a physical space where people can come back. 
Um, we obviously wanted to get the project out while people were still in it and we're building it um, on a very regular basis. We're adding stories as we're going through. There's a decent amount of backlog we're working our way through and those are coming out. But I think when people will come back to it in a few months time, their approach will be different. And we'd love to engage people on a, in a more reflective way as well, where the visitors come in and they're like, oh, okay, you know, this has been a few months now. I've had some time. I've probably moved into new things, new directions, possibly changed my life as we've just spoken about. How do I look back on these stories and what can I now take out of them? Mm -hmm. um, and so that's, yeah. Are you still looking for people to get in touch with you? Absolutely. We love, um, we amazingly have got almost no stories from the UK. So wow. um, I, part of it may be shyness. <laughs> I don't know. Talk part about our feelings. What do you mean? <laughs> um, so we'd absolutely love people to still get in touch. We're also always collecting photographs of people have um, striking photographs that uh, deal with uh, their lockdown lives, but also things that have changed or things that are sort of different in a way from the, mm. from the last two, three months. Um, yeah, so absolutely. We'd love them to get in touch. They can get in touch with us uh, via our social media channels um, or through the website as well. Um, yeah, we continue to collect stories. We continue to talk to people and that will hopefully go on for a few more months. Great. And do you want to share the website and what your social channels are? We'll, we'll put them in the show notes as well. First. Yeah. So we're on, um, all we have stories on Facebook and all we have stories on Instagram as well. And then the website is all we have stories.com. Perfect. And before we wrap up, is there is there anything else you feel like you'd like to say that, that we haven't said? Oh, we've spoken about so many different parts of both the project and also I feel the lockdown life and given myself another chance to process. Um, I think the important thing would be for me that we do appreciate time not only as something that we need to make use of and fill in the best way possible but to have that downtime, that doing nothing which is completely counterintuitive to myself mm -hmm. because out of it come really strong connections and that little sense of purpose I think that we lose very quickly otherwise. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining the Belong Conversation today and for speaking with me this morning. I, I really, really enjoyed that conversation. I feel like I'm going into my weekend really positively now. Yeah. Thank you so much, Alice. It was great. It was really, really fabulous. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening. You will find links to connect with Julia and find the All We Have project online in the show notes. As I mentioned at the end of the last episode, we are not able to get our physical events back up and running just yet. So we are looking at ways that we can continue sharing stories and having conversations that matter. So if you have a story to share, then we would love to hear from you. Just get in touch via our website, belongcon.com, or find us at belongcon on all social media. You'll find links to all of those channels in the show notes. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please check out our previous 23 episodes and please do subscribe and rate and review wherever you're listening on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher or anywhere else as this really helps other people to find these conversations. This episode was hosted by me, Alice Reeves and produced by Elijah Pitt. Thank you.